it's not important, but for those of you who wonder, I'm Dan Phillips. I'm one of the ruling elders here at Spring Meadows. And uh, today we'll be continuing our study that intermittently goes through the Shorter Catechism. So we're hitting number 10 today. Um, why don't we go ahead and read that, uh, whatever word I'm looking for, responsively. If you don't have it, we have uh, on the back, we have uh, little handouts. Um, but let's look at this. Short Catechism number 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Let's open in prayer. Father, we pray that you would be pleased to send your spirit, that he might illumine our minds, that we might see fit to think your thoughts after you, that we might understand who we are, that we might understand what we're to do, and that we might find uh, a salve for our souls in the Savior, knowing that you have recreated us anew unto righteousness and holiness and justice, etc., Father. Uh, help us to see that today and help us to love our neighbors as we go out to a watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I was looking over this, uh, these studies were, uh, poor on me, these studies were created in Korea a long time ago, and I would uh, write some catechism studies, and she would spend the week translating them into Korean, and then I would butcher it, teaching them to a bunch of college kids. Um, I hope that was good for them. It was good for me in the long run. But anyhow, as I was going over it last night, I realized, holy cow, there is so much here and, uh, you know, in terms of an apologetic perspective, as I was thinking about modern cultural trends, etc., cetera, um, I just realized there is so much uh, going on here. And uh, I just got to say, we're, we're not going to interact with all of it. But uh, just as a teaser, you know, the apologetic task, giving unto every man an answer for the hope that is within us, is uh, is huge as we interact with this question, as we interact with the first couple chapters of Genesis. Um, it's huge. So here's just a taste, and I'll give you a taste at the end. You know, throughout this study, we've been looking at Christian theism. I keep saying things like Christian theism is writ large throughout the catechism, right? We've got the idea that God, the eternal, uncreated creator, exists, and he creates his creation. Today, we're looking at man in particular, right? And man is beautiful, but there's a monkey wrench into the beautiful glory of mankind, as we're going to see. In uh, that monkey wrench, we're going to hit in question 14, but we know that there's a fall. There's a moral failure. The problem with humanity isn't that we're flesh. It's not that we're human, right? Unlike some Catholic theologies, problem is that we're basically man. That's the problem. No, man is glorious and good, uh, but the problem is there's a moral failure, right? We do not obey God. God gives a covenant, a stipulation, a covenant of works. We break it, right? And then, of course, after the fall, this red line, there's this reimagining. There's this recreation that God does for us. He brings us back in tune with his image. And we'll see that in the language of being recreated in the image of Christ. Perhaps right now the sort of uh, sexy alternative view in the culture could be called expressive individualism. And we hear this throughout uh, Disney, uh, from Oprah, be true to yourself, the authentic life. Don't judge me, right? Don't judge me because I'm being authentic to myself, right? And how dare you tell me how I could be me, 
right? This is a very different way of thinking about things. It's fundamentally a different religious viewpoint, right? Now notice for these guys, we have X'd out the creator. We don't want him, right? We're certainly not made in his image, right? Because that would mean there's something external and objective outside of me determining what me ought to be. And there's no room for that in me, right? So we get that right out of the picture. But there is the reality that, you know, these folks, like all folks, everybody has to deal with the problem of evil, right? It's a thing. People are sad. Even people, when they're pursuing their, uh, you know, uh, in my view, imagined, uh, you know, their fallen proclivities and their identities, they still commit suicide, right? There's still bad outcomes. Where does that come from? Well, there is a dilemma for them, right? They're not going to call it a fall because man's basically good in their view. And I realize this is really lumping a lot together, but I'm just throwing out that, you know, there's possible avenues we could look at as we consider the biblical data concerning what humanity is. For these guys, the quote fall I put in here, it's oppression, right? It's oppression by your culture telling you what you ought to do. It's oppression by your nation. There's an identity in the nation, and you get plugged into that. I ain't got no place for that. I want to be true to me, and that might not have anything to do with my nation, right? Uh, your family, your family, the, the accumulated wisdom of generations or just one generation, that might get in the way of me being true to me. And lastly, of course, religion, that's a big boogeyman because religions have a lot to say about what ought to be, right? So we're going to see there's fundamental tension between these two, but I got to advertise, this isn't going to be a, a big interaction or apologetic type of thing. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the real deal, right? We're going to look at what does the catechism say concerning how God creates man, okay? So let's get into this. Uh, we're going to start out, uh, I always publish the text that we're going to cite on the right there so you guys can kind of follow along. Um, we're going to look at what we could call the locus classicus, sort of the the big major text that is interacted with when we talk about humanity being in the image of God, right? It's the opening chapter of Genesis, Genesis 1.29. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I know it's going to seem pedantic, but I'm going to play on one phrase and focus on one word throughout the whole time. And it's going to be a lot, so it's going to be fast. So if you can hold your questions, I'd appreciate it. If we have time at the end, I'll gladly entertain them. Man is the image of God. Notice on your handout, image is in bold. We're focusing on the fact that man is the image of God. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. Earlier in our studies of the catechism, specifically when we looked at number one, we said man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we talked about that business of glorifying God, we used the image of like the sun to the moon. We glorify God. It's a reflective glory. The glory that we possess as created in his image is a glory of God being reflected back into all of the creation. And man, of course, is the apex of creation, the last and final of God's good creation. Man is a reflection we saw in Shorter Catechism 1. We image God in that we possess the communicable attributes of God. Remember, we looked at Shorter Catechism number 4. The attributes of God that God shares with us, right? So we're able to have wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, right? So man is the image of God. In some way, man images God, right? That was easy. That's our first point. Man is the image of God. Secondly, man is the image 
of God, specifically God we're going to focus on here, not just in some general way, but we must confess that man reflects the triune God as a whole, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So let's look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice the plural here, us, right? Traditionally, in 126 of Genesis, the church has understood the plural here to be referring to the plurality of the persons in the Godhead, right? And of course, we're referring to the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. God makes us in his image. Now, does that mean that God makes us three-personed? No. But it does mean that in some way we bear the image of the triune God because each person, because each person is active in our creation and we're made in God's image. So let's, let's try this out. Let's see how this works. First, I want to see, and this will be easiest to prove, is that we're made in the image of the Son. Okay? Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets... But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice there, he's the radiance of the glory of the image of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, that's... Jesus is okay uh, the son is the eternal image of the father we see if uh, Hebrews 1 1 through 3 is speaking primarily of the incarnate Christ right Christ as enfleshed but not only the incarnate Christ we don't speak of the incarnate Christ as the creator of all things typically God the son both before and after his incarnation is the exact representation of God's nature Colossians 1 15 tells us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we see clearly Christ is the image of God. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, of course, we're speaking about the church. The church is predestined to be conformed to the image of the son, and the son is the express imprint of the being of the father. Right. So, of course, we're talking about this is we are made in the image of Christ. Right. Especially remade as Christians were being remade in the likeness of Christ. But what about the first creation? Were we made in the image of Christ at the first creation? It's clear that, you know, in recreation, we're being reimaged, as it were, into the image of Christ. Uh, well, two passages seem to imply that there's already an image of God and that we're created according to that likeness. Think about this, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Perhaps it's suggesting a, a pre-existent image, right? Romans 5.14 says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Adam's a type of the one to come. 
you know, normally we think of automobiles. That's, that's my wheelhouse. I like that, right? You got a prototype, and that's the first thing built, and then they go ahead and they actually make something that's usually not nearly as cool, but it's cheaper and more practical, right? But no, in reality, it's saying, no, 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 no. There's this type, this heavenly type, Christ, and we are made in his image, right? Adam, the first man, is said to be a type of the one to come. Behind the type, there's a reality, a greater reality. Christ was the reality that Adam, as the image of God, pointed to. So I know this might be convoluted and uh, kind of fast, but that's okay. I just want you to see that Scripture teaches that we were originally made in the image of the Son. Now, of course, you've already seen implied in this that we're made in the image of the Father as well. Since the Son is the eternal image of the Father, and we are the image of Christ, we're the image of the Father. Uh, in John 14, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Right? So Jesus unpacks who the Father is, in his incarnation, right? Well, we're also, lastly, made in the image of the Holy Spirit. Now, that spirit that's present in Genesis 1-2, right? It's the same person of the Godhead that speaks in Genesis 1-26. So consider this for a moment. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here's the spirit present at creation, hovering over the face of the waters, active in creation. And we see that active spirit hovering and blowing and doing recreation in other places, the Exodus, for example. Uh, the uh, also in the, uh, you know, blowing away the waters after the flood, for example. 126, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now when the Bible says let us, it's usually referring to God the Holy Spirit who manifested himself in the glory cloud at creation. And that glory cloud of course hovers, the same language, hovers over the Israelites in the wilderness out of which uh, God calls his prophets. Now, that might be the weakest point. For those of you guys that want to read a bunch, uh, I commend to you. It, it's a great book. It's like 80 pages. It, it's not easy reading, but uh, Professor Meredith Klein wrote a book called The Images of the Spirit, and he argues in particular, and he defends the idea that we're made, created in the image of the Spirit, right? Um, okay, so I've, I've went out of my way to make the argument that, hey, uh, we are made in the image of the triune God, okay, in detail. We're made in the image of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's included if you're Trinitarian. If you say you're made in the image of God, you go, well, I'm a Trinitarian. I must reflect the image of our triune God in some way. Now, it's kind of hard to categorize and classify. It's not like we can dissect this on a, on a table and label everything, but we can get pretty close. So we've seen that man is the image of God in some detail. But God is both one and many. We've looked at hey, we are many in the sense that we reflect the image of the Trinity, right? The triune God. Sure. 
God, however, is both universal, one, and particular, many, right? God is one. There's one God. So don't get lost. I'm arguing for the unity of the Godhead now and how we reflect a unity as well. There's one God, but we, the one God ex eternally exists in three persons. God is many. So in like manner, humanity from its inception and now are both one and many. Notice the text's usage. Uh, I'm sorry. Notice the text's use. Usage was right. Notice the text usage of man, him, and them in Genesis 1.27. I think I highlighted this for you at the top of your text. Notice the text's usage of man, him, and them in Genesis 1.27. So God created man. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, starting with the man. Uh, the man, of course, literally the Adam, the Hebrew is ha-adam, right? The, the, the Adam dude. Uh, is perhaps you could make the argument it's very male and perhaps very specific in that it would seem that it refers to him singularly, right? And then lastly, we look at the plural as them. Well, uh, you know, we don't want to go ahead and apply too much feminist criticism here because the text really makes it clear that the him is actually the them, right? Him equals them. Denny Prutow, uh, I don't know who he is. He's some, some dude teaching the catechism on the shorter catechism. Uh, but uh, listen to him, he's, he's, he's all right. Uh, he makes this logic really clear. Uh, he says him equals them, right? And so perhaps, uh, you know, you could say the one is many. Humanity, that is the unity, is male and female, and that's the diversity, right? So we have the unity of the Godhead. We have the unity of humanity. Humanity is one. But humanity is also male and female. It's diverse. It's different, right? There's a plurality. So the one humanity is them, a plurality. Or as uh, Reverend Prutow says, uh, him equals them. Therefore, when the catechism speaks of man, it's not speaking of males alone, right? Man, the image bearer, is conceived of as both male and female. And so let's take a little excursus here. Um, so there's no room here. Uh, you know, it has been argued that Aristotle makes the argument that women are incomplete men. And I'll leave your imagination to figure out what's missing. But the argument is, like, the m women are incomplete men is the argument. Now, of course, you could put that in reverse. Men are missing things, too. Um, no, Ar Aristotle's supposed quip that men are incomplete, uh, that women are incomplete men, uh, and by the way, some people would argue that's due to a mistranslation of Aristotle. Uh, I don't have the mojo to dig through those texts nor the time, but that's a possibility. I'm not here to defend Aristotle. Whether or not that's true, you could see how this would be a useful claim if you have an axe to grind, right? If you have an axe to grind and you look at a reading or possibly misreading of Aristotle where he's saying things like, well, women are just incomplete men, uh, you could use that as fodder for your weapon to fight the patriarchy or whatever it is that you know floats your boat. I want to submit to you, though, that humans of all varieties do this. Sometimes we get lazy when we're in intellectual debate. I do. Um, and we might mischaracterize a position if it'll make us look better or strengthen our viewpoint. And that means I'm coming after us. Okay. Um, 
so that that's the you know the sort of Aristotelian quote, um, and it, it is true. At least my read of Aristotle, you know, he puts uh, man maleness on the side of form, and he puts femaleness on the side of matter. And it doesn't take too much reasoning to. It, it's probably true, would be my guess, uh, because at least you know in Platonic philosophy, form is good and wonderful and heavenly, and matter is bad. And I understand. Uh, Aristotle does a tweak on that, but nonetheless, it doesn't bode well for, for women, would be my guess. Okay, well, let's talk a little closer to, uh, to us, for the church. There's a charge. Uh, when I was uh, in college, I had a really cool class called, I think it was called Pagan Culture, and it was, you know, Greek and Roman culture, pre-400 AD, let's say. And uh, it was a great class, but I remember really clearly that the professor made the claim that there was a council of, it's, I think it was in France, or it was Masson or Macon, uh, either it's Council of Macon or Council of Masson uh, in 585 AD. And the argument is, that's been repeated often since, is that during this council, the big question was, are women human, right? That was the big question. Um, uh, and I was like, well, that's fascinating. You know, I had been a Christian for probably, uh, three, four years at that point, and I'm like, that's a no-brainer. But uh, that, was, that was supposedly what the Council of Mason was about. And, and supposedly, what I heard from my professor was that it decreed that women don't have a soul. So I was, I thought that was curious, right? And, you know, I was in college, and, you know, these guys are encouraging you to go to sources. And so as I went to sources, I found out that, you know, that professor whom I admire is a neat guy, Although he was an adjunct, and so I have the greatest sympathy because they wear many hats and do the best that they can and, you know, maybe don't read the sources. But anyhow, uh, this is really stuck in the literature. That the Council of Mason is talking about whether women have a soul, and sometimes you hear they don't, sometimes you hear they do. Um, well, the story of how this whole thing comes to be is convoluted and long, but sort of fascinating. I'll give you a short form. It's likely uh, it comes about by a German Lutheran named Lyser who lazily read a text by Gregory of Tours, okay? And the, the text does interact with sort of just basic language in Genesis 1. Is it appropriate to call the woman man? Is, is it, is, uh, uh, you know, anthropos, man in Greek, is that, uh, does that universal, does it apply to all humanity, or is it specific, just replying to maleness, right? And it's probably those kinds of arguments that are going on. Anyhow, this, uh, quote from Gregory of Tours has nothing to do with the Council of Macon, uh, and so he, he popularizes this, and he attributes this to the Council of Macon. So a, Jew a Lutheran guy misattributes a conversation that we don't know the source of and imputes it to the Council of Macon. Okay. Then this account gets popularized by someone in our camp, a Dutch Calvinist who used to be a Roman Catholic, and having thrown off Romanism, he hates it, right? And sometimes it's possible when we change when we have significant, uh, you know, worldview changes, that sometimes we might not always be as charitable towards that which we know in other aspects is false, right? And sometimes we might get messy and assume because it's false here, it's false everywhere. Um, anyhow, this Dutch Calvinist guy named Pierre Bale, uh, he popularizes uh, an account, right? He, when he looks at the Roman Church. He doesn't take a good sort of Protestant historiography and realize the Reformation doesn't fall out of the sky. That is, the Reformation is a reformation. It's related to the work of the church. God's acts in time and place and history, and there is continuity, even though there's a mess, right? No, he kind of just goes 
whole hog and everything's bad, at least in this case, uh, he ignores the reformational principle of ad fontes, right? The Reformation and the Renaissance said go back to the sources, right? And that's a lot of what we see in the Reformation. But, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a parish minister, he might have forgotten to do that. Anyhow, if you do go back to the sources and you look at the Council of Macon, Council of Macon doesn't talk about women at all, right? Council of Macon doesn't talk about souls at all. So this is like made up whole cloth, probably by Lyser and popularized by this guy, Pierre Bale. I just want to, this is a great thing about being a Calvinist. We have no problems with confessing the effects of the fall for all, including us, right? Total depravity is a thing. We can get it wrong, okay? Um, we can get it wrong. Now, so I think I put in your paper, maybe total depravity is an equal opportunity employer. I know that's a bit of a rabbit trail, but this is the popular kind of stuff you hear. The church is out to get women. They're not fully human, right? And, uh, you know, it's not based on anything in reality. Now, there's other arguments to be had, but some of those, these are some of the big ones. All right. Let's get back to our point that man is made in the image of God specifically. The unity and humanity, or the unity of humanity and plurality of, yeah, trying to hurry if you haven't noticed. The unity of humanity and the plurality of humanity are perhaps, to borrow Cornelius Van Til's term, equally ultimate. Okay, that is, it's a both and. You need to respect unity of humanity. You need to respect the plurality of humanity. And there's several errors we could fall into here. The focus on maleness alone or femaleness alone as essentially the image of God is to get it wrong. The focus on the unity of humanity and perhaps to ignore the diversity of humanity is to get it wrong. To focus on the diversity of humanity and ignore the unity of humanity is wrong. God created him, male and female, he created them. The him is them. The one is the many, right? Uh, male and female is what it means to be the image of God and you can't conceive of the image of God apart from women or men. Well. Third point, man is the image of God. We're focusing on the man part. The image of God is principally, of course, the spiritual and immortal nature of man, but it's also everything else that man is, and that includes our bodies. Our bodies are much like the bodies of all the other creatures, and that, of course, needs to be the case because we live in a carbon-based universe. We have lungs. We have hearts. Big surprise, you can find similar organs in similar animals. Maybe even some of those parts are swappable. I'm not so sure about that, but... There's people who know these things here. Um, yeah, no big surprise there. That's the nature of the case. We're designed to inhabit a world, and therefore, both man and animals are carbon beings. God has manifested his glory in all of his creation, but especially in man, because of that fact that man is created in God's image. But in some ways, we have to confess our bodies image God. Don't want to go too far on that, but I think it's fair to say. Now, our soul. This, of course, is the inbreathing of the spirit that makes us man. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed from man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature, right? God is spirit, and he gives spirit to us. This is that peculiar kiss of life that God gives Adam that he doesn't give any other creatures, right? And, of course, we see in one twenty-seven of Genesis that God makes man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. 
male and female he created them. So at the beginning, it's male and female. It's only together as male and female that the image of God can be fully comprehended. And look no further, we're going to get into this in a bit, but how do you fulfill the creative task that God calls upon his creation to mimic unless you have male and female? It does not happen, right? It's only together as male and female that uh, the image of God can be fully comprehended. Well, let's look at community. Upon being created in community, Adam and Eve, by the way, in the Genesis text, the only time that the, the words, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, do not come to pass, is when the Lord says it's not good that the man should be alone. He completes the creation of humanity with Eve, right? So upon being created in community, Adam and Eve are called upon to broaden their community by childbirth. We're communal creatures, and we ought to seek to make good communities. And so as another side note, as such, all forms of monasticism are anti-creational. For you to go hide, now whatever, I mean, for a bit, it's, it's one thing. But for you to go hide in a pole and have people on occasion bring you food and all that, that is an anti-creational impulse. When we look at the new heavens and the new earth, it is a glorified city. It is not a bunch of people, you know, humming or whatever, in, in a prayer closet. No, it is a city. It is a glorified reality. Monasticism in all its forms anti-creational. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among closet prayer warriors. <laughs> no, many Brothers is what it says. So there's a community. Christ's work of redemption brings us into community also. And that's what we're here for. We are a people called out of the world. We are not uh, investing our labors for, you know, money today. It's good every other day of the week. But we come here for a community to be reprogrammed and reminded that we're being reimaged in the image of Christ. There's a community. It's made. That's what church is. Well, lastly, we're going to see man is the image of God. We're focusing on is here as a state, as a reality, as definitive, as what is, right? We're focusing on God's image in the sense of a noun. We are the image of God. That's our state. It's what we are. It's indicative. It's inescapable. Now, we try to escape it. We play all kinds of language games and make ourselves feel good. But sometimes that feeling good doesn't always fix things, as we've seen there, as we seek our quest towards self-authenticity, etc. We are the image of God. It's indicative. It speaks of what we are. This is why we are valuable. This is why Jewish and Christian theologians have always said humans have value. You don't willy-nilly bump a person off. They're made in the image of God. For you to attack the image of man is for you to commit deicide. You're going to kill God as you kill man. You don't go there. Now, there's arguments for why there might be certain circumstances, right? You could make arguments for the death penalty under certain egregious crimes, but that's not something to be taken upon willy-nilly, right? Even if you are pursuing your authentic self and ridding yourselves of undesirables might be attractive, right? That's, that's a thing. Watch out for that. Well, yeah. That's why we see a high premium on human rights. Well, because people have intrinsic baked into the cake value as image bearers. And how dare we try to find some easy way, convenience, uh, 
scarcity? Scarcity issues. There's not such a scarcity of humanity. As a matter of fact, the world is off overpopulated. Maybe we can make those decisions, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's scary. Just as importantly, though, not only are we statively the image of God, but also uh, we're also made to image God. That is as a verb. We're made in the image of God. It's stating what we are, but we're also to image God actively, that we would participate and be like God, right? We are to actively reflect his glory. We commented on this a little bit with Shorter Catechism 1. We're to act like God, our king. We're to do what he has done. We're to act like kings under the great king, right? God establishes man as a vice-regent in the garden. He's a vice-king, as it were, to act like God in the garden. So we're to image uh, God's creation, right? God tells us in 128, be fruitful and multiply. What is that? That is, we are participating in the creative acts of God in the highest forms in which we're able to, right? We're creating things. Now, it's impossible, needs to be said, uh, without the marriage union of a male and a female created in the image of God, there's no fruitful and multiplying, right? God has called him to imitate him by creating life like him, the creator. Not only are we to image his creatorness, uh, we're also to image his authority, right? We see God in the days of creation. He goes through and he, he makes day and night. He gives it names, right? The first day and the second day, all that stuff. He, he gives names to things, right? God names the light day and the darkness night. He names the heaven and the seas. We see in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, Adam has a similar task. God says, you know, it's a good teacher model. I do, we do, you do. Well, maybe the we do thing's done, but, but God goes ahead. I do, you do, Adam, right? I named things day and night. Adam, I want you to name the animals, Right? We see that in Genesis 19 and 20. Now out of the land or out of the ground that the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Adam, are you going to be a good vice king? Are you going to act like me? Are you going to exercise authority and call that long necked thing a giraffe? Pretty sure it wasn't giraffe. Pretty sure it wasn't English. But nonetheless, the point is uh, Adam is acting like his creating God, right? Adam names them, and that's its name, it says in verse 19. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. To name something is to have authority. And this is kind of interesting. You know, I, you know, in my day job, I, I interact with kids a lot. And one of the interesting concepts for a lot of kids has been, you know, for kids that are struggling through teenage years and identity issues, and you know the, the Vogue one is my, my identity is I, I might be in a male's body, but I'm really a woman or vice versa, is the concept of a dead name, okay? Dead name is the idea of a name that your parents gave you, right? Ooh, the oppressive family, they gave you a name, right? And that's really powerful, and they feel like that is a power play. For you to name me this is to exercise power over me, and I want to identify myself, so I'm Bob or Cindy or whatever. Um, that's a thing, right? And so implicitly, we see that even today, we, we see this feel that naming things has authority, right? And we want to say, you know, down with authority, you want to change your name, right? So, but Adam is made, Eve is made, to image God's authority, right? Not just image his creatorliness, but his authority, right? So to name something means we have authority. 
we're also to image God's providence, right? Providence is God's uh, holy and wise ruling of all his creation and all their creatures, I think is what the catechism says. Genesis 2.15 and one twenty six. Man is to do what with God's creation? He's to care for it. He's to tend it. He's to keep it. He is to continue the plan of God in taking care of creation. He's to make it even more beautiful by being like his great king, moving from disorder to increasing order, right? And we could just sort of do some backwards reading if we take the new heavens and the new earth, which Adam supposedly should have gotten to if he was obedient to the covenant of works. We see that we go from you know, a beautiful wilderness where nothing is lacking to a new heavens and a new earth where nothing is lacking, but it's orderly, right? So the assumption is, is that Adam was supposed to carry on that creative endeavor, right? Disorder to increasing order. Genesis 2.15, we see the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis 1.26 says, the Lord God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man is to exercise dominion. Now we're to image. Uh, don't want to get into a robust defense of a Christian argument for environmental ethics, but I think there's plenty of fuel there, Right? I think there's plenty of fuel in looking at the resurrection of Christ, that Christ rises, a dead carcass is reanimated. The call for good treatment of the creation is all through the text, right? We don't need to let our friends that believe that we are part of the divine, the divine is part of us, creation's all one, and therefore we ought to worship it. We don't need to go there to have an appreciation for creation and have some good arguments for clean water, air, whatever. Some of you hate me for that, but that's fine. Uh, I'm not woke, I promise. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, so anyhow, uh, not only are we to image God's providence in caring for his creation and showing what that new kingdom is to be like and participate as participants of what that place is like, uh, we're also to image God's righteousness and justice. God sets Adam and Eve in the garden to take care of it. The Hebrew's a little stronger. It's shamar, right? They're to guard it. They're to protect it and keep it, right? So we can catch the import of this command to guard this, like, holy temple area, the garden. Uh, we can catch that import of guarding it after the fall, right? After the fall, what does God do? God says, whoops, security guard that was on the job failed. We're going to assign, right, some angelic beings with flaming swords, they will guard it. They will not fail, right? And we see, of course, that's what happens after man is ejected from the garden. So when God first made man, he made man in God's image, both as a noun and as a verb, as we've seen. He was the image of God, statively. That's what we are. That's what we are today still. It's fallen, but we are the image of God still. Therefore, we still respect humans, right? Even though we do beasty things, right? Beastly things. Um, But not only is he the image of God, but also he is to image God. And we're still called to image God as a verb. He was to image God, or he was the image of God, especially in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. But also he imaged God, especially in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
Now, we all know <laughs> there's bad news, right? There's a monkey wrench in man's exercising his kingly authority and knowledge and righteousness and holiness in his ability to participate in being like the creator in creating and being like the creator in exercising authority and being like the creator in exercising providence, right? There's a monkey wrench in that business, and we get into that in Shorter Catechism number 14, what is sin, right? But I just want you to stop and pause because so much of our humanity is uh, experienced as just pondering sin. And our tradition, rightfully so, focuses on the reality of sin. Because if there's no sin, there's no Savior. And it doesn't make sense otherwise. However, I want you to pause and think about the beauty and glory of man as created. Entrusted to be like God. Made like God. Acts like God. This beautiful vice king, as it were. Well, perhaps because of sin and the ugliness of human history, we don't give this much thought. But I want you to appreciate the beauty and glory of man as he was first created, male and female. A uh, pastor gives a quote, and he'll tell you where it comes from. I'm just quoting Tim Posey. Put this on him. If we were to see man as he was first created, we would fall at his feet as though dead and worship him. Right? Who is that, Tim? C.S. Lewis. I don't read Lewis. That's why I wouldn't know. Okay. But <laughs> thank you. I'm glad you read him for me. Uh, but no, th there's some truth to that, right? The beauty of holiness as seen by, uh, you know, if we were to see Adam and his holiness. So I just, man, perfect, sinless, beautiful, declared by God along with all of his creation to be good. Adam and Eve were God's discussion partners, as it were. God calls Adam and Eve good, good in their being, ethically good, intellectually good. No lazy thoughts where you say, you know, I think there was a council of Macon, and I'm pretty sure they said women weren't human. Now, I guess based on sort of the lore, there was a bishop who had some questions, and it was probably linguistic questions about is it appropriate to include woman as part of mankind, right? Uh, and, and the other bishop said, yeah, and he said, okay, and that was about it, right? But it's interesting how, you know, in our laziness, we can do things, and, and we, we're susceptible to that too because Shorter Catechism 14 is true of us too. Intellectually good, good in their wills, what they aff their affections were, what their desires were, right? To such a people, God gives dominion over the animals or the job of caring for his creation. What kind of society do you think they would have made? If they were made with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, would they not have made a society that was wise and just and pure? Indeed. Now, there's the, <laughs> to steal from the author of Ecclesiastes, there's the irrationality of irrationalities. Why would such a creature fall, right? And the problem of evil gets all of us. Why would such a beautiful, glorious creature fall? Well, we're not going to get into that today. But uh, I just want to stop and uh, just mention, I've really restrained myself from comparing the beauty of the created order with all of the ways in which we've screwed God's good creation up, right? But it needs to be said that the apologetic ramifications of Shorter Catechism number 10, when we interact with people in the culture, is huge, right? We're talking about a different view of reality. We're not saying my authenticity and self-truth is me. It's not self-referential. I am, at the end of the day, the be-all and end-all. Don't judge me because I'm doing this or I bleached that or I, you know, uh, emasculated that, right? I mean, that, that is 
that's where we're at as a culture sometimes, and God forbid you if you question that, right? With a Christian theistic view, of course, there is some bad news, right? The bad news is, yeah, you're violating the created ordinance, right? That God made things a certain way, and he has a right to get in your business, right? Now, of course, what there is here and there isn't here is there's a relief valve, right? The relief valve is, although you've broken all of God's laws and screwed up all of his creation, there is a redeemer, right? There is the, the redeemer of God's elect. There's this guy, Jesus Christ, and he has done all that really is self-truth. He has done all that is genuinely authentic, and he incorporates you into him by faith and so that you can have a free conscience to serve God and love your neighbor, right? Well, we'll get there when we get to Shorter Cags in 14. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks uh, for such a good message that we are not to uh, futz about and try to find ourselves, but rather we know what's true, uh, not because we're smart, but because you've revealed it. We pray that you would make this clear as we study, as we hear your word preached. Father, make us winsome as communicators of you as the creator, uh, redeemer, uh, providence, uh, exercising, and redeeming God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There, there's so much more that could be said. Sex, gender, marriage, identity, authority, autonomy, environmental ethics, all these things, and more. Creationism, traditionism, but, yeah. Thank you. <laughs>